Welcome to the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast, where we invite you into a journey of healing and personal transformation that will radically change your divorce experience, heal your heart while refining your character, and set you up to be effective and feel empowered as you navigate the practical and emotional challenges of divorce. I'm your host, Karen McMahon, founder of Journey Beyond Divorce. My divorce brought me to my knees, and it also transformed me and set me on this path to help you. Our team of JBD coaches support men and women to engage in divorce with more calm, clarity, and confidence through our one-on-one coaching, group programs, online courses, and free resources. As children, we develop a working model, like a schema of how our existence relates to other people. Um, and that schema or understanding of, of our how our needs are going to be met, you know, whether they're emotional or physical, um, how that affects us later in adulthood. Um, so here we're talking about how does the parent respond to the child? And those differences of how they respond to the child's needs affect that child on a very unconscious level, right? This is very unconscious workings. This isn't somebody conceptually saying, oh, you know what? Um, I'm not worthy uh, because my parent didn't uh, respond to me. So it's it's really the child's working model of how they exist in relation to other people. Welcome to Healthy Romantic Relationships, where we invite you to consider exactly what you need to know about yourself and your new partner. Learn about the foundational pillars and dynamics of healthy relationships and how to give and get the love you want. We speak with experts about communication, personality and attachment styles, sensuality and sexuality, and when to consider remarriage and perhaps a blended family. If you're yearning for a healthy, vibrant, romantic relationship post-divorce, we're here to support you. Welcome back to another episode of Healthy Romantic Relationships. Today, we dive into attachment theory and how it can help us find and keep love based on the science of adult attachment. My desire is that you will emerge from today's conversation, understanding that each of us behaves in relationship in one of three distinct ways, anxiously attached, avoidant attached, or securely attached. So what exactly does that mean? Today's guests explain the difference in attachment styles, uh, the interplay that occurs when you and your partner have different styles and how that plays out in love and conflict. It is our hope that you will be able to identify your own style and that of those you're in relationship with so that you can either find a compatible partner or improve your current relationship. A little about our guests. Uh, We have Dr. Kimberly Murray and Gregory Siebert. They're licensed marriage and family therapists with over 20 years combined clinical and research experience in the world of relationships. They share these experiences on their podcast, which is 
Relationships Inside Out. I highly recommend you check it out, where they dive into topics such as sex, conflict, happiness, and family dynamics. I'm very excited for this conversation. Welcome, Greg and Kim. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. We're very excited. Yeah. And what a great topic for us to talk about. I've read uh, the book attached and I'm wondering if we could just start out by sharing with our listeners, what is this attachment theory? Where does it come from? Just a little background. Yeah. So it was, it was really developed like 60s, 70s by Bowlby and Ames. They're kind of really the, the people that the figureheads of, of this theory. Um, they're really interested in how as children, we develop a working model, like a schema of how our existence relates to other people. Um, and that schema or understanding of, of our, how our needs are going to be met, you know, whether they're emotional or physical, um, how that affects us later in adulthood. Um, so here we're talking about how does the parent respond to the child? And those differences of how they respond to the child's needs affect that child on a very unconscious level, right? This is very unconscious workings. This isn't somebody conceptually saying, oh, you know what? Um, I'm not worthy uh, because my parent didn't uh, respond to me. So it's, it's really the child's working model of how they exist in relation to other people. And that affects mental health down the way and, and adult relationships um, such as that. And as you said, there's several attachment styles, secure, uh, anxious disambivalent, avoidant, um, and some that organized. A big part of attachment is this identifying of trust. Can I trust my caregiver? Can I trust my loved ones to be there for me? If I go and explore, if I make a mistake, can I trust that they're still going to be there for me? Or am I concerned that they might leave? Mm -hmm. Or do I put up walls so that they don't get a chance to leave? They don't get a chance to hurt me. Right. So at the core of this is being able to really trust on those relationships, trust ourselves in those relationships, and then build, hopefully, healthy ways of interacting within them. Yeah. And, and kind of as we will talk and progress into in how this plays out in adult relationships, just because you might develop with, a, a, <laughs> say, anxious uh, attachment style. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're stuck with that in your life. I mean, there's learned attachment. Even people who grew up with a very secure base can, in adult relationships, um, develop an anxious attachment or avoid it in the relationships, depending on their experience, right? It's these experiences of how others interact with them that really shape that. I want to put a quick caveat. If we say parents, we don't just mean parents, Okay. This is anyone who helped raise you guardians, even teachers, or if you were in foster care, foster families, this isn't just the one bio mom or dad, bio mom or dad, especially in today's families. There's a lot of constellations of families. Mm -hmm. So now that when we say that word, we're meaning all of those supportive relationships that were along this as we grew up in now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the first question that comes to mind is, let's say I have mom, dad, mom, dad, and grandma, and they're three different personalities. So they're actually mm -hmm. dealing with the child differently. Um, and so, so you've got multiple personalities who might be raising a kid um, and yet they end up with a single attachment style. So how does, how does that work? So if one parent is very kind of attentive and the other parent might be, less so does how does that play into how your attachment style develops what research shows us is that a protective factor is one supportive adult mm -hmm. so if 
a kiddo goes through crisis or divorce or um, conflict at home, that one supportive adult is a major protective factor. So ideally our attachment style will be built there. But it can also be time spent with each parent. Who are we spending most of our time with? Um, What are the quality of those interactions? Are they supportive or are they built out of fear? So it's really looking at how much time, what those interactions look like, and how my personality intersects with their personality. So am I able to mm, regulate and be with them? Or am I also anxious? Mm -hmm. That kind of piece is what I think about. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's, it's really, there is a protective factor. Um, I think about it with parents who are very conflictual and the child end up with a grandparent or something like that. If that grandparent's stable, that's a very um, important protective mm-hmm. factor. But again, protective factor. Um, you know, there, there's obviously some that kind of also develop the unhealthy that they're predominantly around. So time spent and also hopefully there is somebody that's a healthy mm-hmm. attachment style there. But again, just because you grow up with an unhealthy does not mean you can't later in life. Get it's not a life secure. sentence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And that was the point I was just going to make. So you're so it's very important that our listeners understand once you understand your attachment style, you're not pigeonholed and locked into that mm-hmm. for the rest of your life. Like, oh, my God, what do I do now? Um, it's it's it sounds like it's a, a place where you can understand yourself and maybe some of the relationships you've had and then grow from that place. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah. If one, we bring knowledge to why we're doing certain things in relationships and we get knowledge of like, oh, this is my attachment. And really, this is my expectation of how other people are interacting with me. So if I, for example, I take the anxious attachment, um, somebody who's anxious grew up with a a parent who maybe was inconsistent in their support, um, didn't respond every time the child was in need. And so that's what they expect growing up in an adult relationship. And they'll will perform or, um, you know, cognitions around my partner did this because, well, they don't care about me or I'm not important, right? It's this, they're using that lens they developed that schema from a, like a younger age to set the expectation of what their partner's doing, but challenging that, stepping back and understanding like, are they really like, just because they've been away for six hours and they're not home on time, does that mean they're cheating, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's challenging that and being like, well, this is just what I expect because this is what happened and growing up. Um, and it really sets that platform, but challenging that is, is one way, but to challenge, you have to be aware of it. That introspection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was just going to use the word, um, a level of conscious awareness, right? So, so you're, you're reacting a certain way. And, and if it's blame and accusation, that understanding your attachment style gives you the ability to um, slow it down a little bit and understand why you're having the interpretation or reaction you're having. Is that, is, does that, is that fair? And it's, yeah, Yeah, that's fair. And it's just having the introspection, but it's having the willingness, the openness to do something with it, right? You may have not chosen your attachment style. No one does, but unfortunately you're, it was a gift you were given and Mm -hmm. now you have to work with it. And so I talk clients a lot about, yeah, you didn't choose to have inconsistent parenting. Mm -hmm. You didn't choose to grow up in conflict. And unfortunately you're the one that has to overcome it. You're Mm -hmm. the one that has to work with it, to get to know it, to lean into it, get curious mm-hmm. and then to deal with it. And so having that introspection, but then also being open to the process mm-hmm. of what that's going to look like to change. And would it be helpful if we kind of defined each one? Um, <clears throat> exactly. So that people was- get a sense of like what behaviors are, are relative to this. So secure attachment um, to begin with is very much 
they've had consistent help um, from a caregiver. Um, their needs were met on a consistent basis. So in later in life, they're very confident in expressing their needs, but they also know when their partner needs support. Um, they regulate emotions well. Um, there's not a lot of intrusive thoughts about, oh, my partner's leaving or things like that. There's a lot of uh, trust because that's what they grew up with is that sense of trust. If I can, I can expect to trust people because that's what the model and schema was given to me. Mm-hmm. And then there's two types of insecure. So there's avoidant or anxious. So avoidant, we didn't have a caregiver that was consistent or really present. So we got used to doing things on our own. We got used to being independent and thus I'm really good at doing all the things myself. I'm really good at kind of avoiding leaning too much into relationship because I'm afraid I'm going to get hurt if I do. It doesn't mean that they don't want attachment. It doesn't mean that they don't want that connection, mm-hmm. but my protective mechanism myself protects itself from getting hurt from that potential threat. And thus mm-hmm. I wall up. I stay at arm's mm-hmm. length from the people I love. And, and those who are expecting the avoidant attachment or experiencing that, um, they feel most comfortable with other independent individuals. We look at these individuals, they're very independent relationships. They don't need much. Um, but if you really break it down, they're really not that vulnerable either because that vulnerability is too scary um, because that's what they, you know, tried as a young infant at some point or young child. And it was met with criticism or neglect or just, um, you know, some disdain from the parent, uh, maybe even criticism. Um, so it's not safe. And they feel again, most comfortable with somebody who's independent and, compared to like an anxious avoidant, which, uh, or sorry, an anxious ambivalent, mm-hmm. this is somebody who, um, their needs were met, but not necessarily consistently. So they're very anxious about when that might happen again. And you see in adult relationships, there's a lot of these intrusive thoughts that well, my partner, they might not come back. Mm-hmm. They might not be there for me. Maybe a lot of emotional dysregulation here as well. Being clingy. Being cl- <laughs> like I, I overinvest or I hold on to my partner so tightly that I actually push them away because I'm afraid of losing them. And so I cling to them or I do these mm-hmm. <clears throat> subconscious needy behaviors just to stay in connection and to validate my own sense of connection. Yeah. It's almost, um, I trust that I'll get that reward again, kind of like a slot machine. We get rewarded every now and then, but there's more time when there's not a reward. And it's like, I don't know when I'm going to get that. So I'm very anxious about keeping this because I don't want to lose it. Cause I don't like those gaps in between when I get my need met or not. Right. 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 So so that's so interesting. Um, I'm, I'm curious because I feel like we've all grown up in somewhat dysfunctional households. Like <laughs> as as therapists, do you see a lot of the secure? A lot of secure attachment. Yeah. Research would argue at one point it would argue that up to seventy percent have a secure attachment. I don't know that I buy that, but I think we have a biased perspective because we see people who are in crisis and conflict. Like they're not coming to us to say, oh, isn't my marriage just beautiful? Mm-hmm. They're coming to us with, with conflict, right? Well, and, and with, this is an interesting question because um, I can think of some couples I've had where one partner is secure and then another one's like, say, anxious. Well, that secure person has now become a little more anxious because the, the you know, just dis, the dysregulation of their partner. Um, and, and that one's a little tricky because like as a therapist, you're especially working with couples or any family systems. You, our job is to make sure there's balance in there. And so, you know, you don't want to like focus on one person or the other because um, then they feel like it's their fault. There's a lot of like insecurity of, oh, well, it's because I'm the problem. Um, so you have to 
find ways that, that that someone who's securely attached to understand their partner and and learn skills that might help them be less dysregulated or give them more reassurance with the understanding of, oh, my partner has that mm-hmm. anxious attachment. That's why. Um, right. But it, it is a very tricky one because you, you look at someone who's secure and you're like, okay, they're regulating emotions. They're not really getting in really high conflict. They're able to talk and emotionally attune, um, all healthy things. Um, so we do see that, but I would say more predominantly, it's, it's, um, the the insecure attachments that we see. Yeah, yeah. And so um, what, this might sound like an obvious, but let me ask it, what is the value? Because I'm listening to you, I'm trying to think what my attachment style is. So what's the value of an individual understanding themselves and their attachment style? Let's let's start with that. Mm -hmm. If I know my attachment style, I can become more aware of potential challenges that I might bring to the relationship or my potential triggers or um, things within my behavior that I need to keep an eye for. I can also use that attachment style, say, <clears throat> say I am anxious, right? Using that to gauge the kind of partner I pick, using that in my parenting. How do I attuned to myself so that I don't carry this anxious attachment forward to my child. <laughs> Say that you're anxious. You, you, you are anxious. <laughs> hey, I think I'm actually leaning towards secure these days. Oh. <laughs> I grew up a very anxious attachment style and my husband is very secure. And I think I've made a lot of progress in that area, sir. Purpose. I, don't know. I was just making a joke. <laughs> um, but I, I agree with you. Those are really good points. Another another good point I feel like is someone who might not understand these styles yeah. will often identify with what they're typically told because of the behaviors they engage mm-hmm. in. So because I'm anxious, I'm needy and I'm checking in on them. I want them to tell me where they're at potentially, you know, how extreme that is. So they they get told a lot that they're needy. So then they're just like, I'm just a needy person. But if you really understand that this is a product of, of mm-hmm. how your needs were met or lack thereof growing up, that it's not because you're needy. It's because you don't trust and expect um, your needs being met. And that's okay. And this is a good starting point to one, um, not blame yourself and label yourself as needy, but say that this is just how, yeah. you know, the schema that I've learned. And now I can actually work towards improving that. Um, but what's the motivation to change anything or mm-hmm. you kind of feel helpless? I'm just needy. And, and you kind of okay with that, right? Um, Think about compassion. Like it invites that self-compassion. If I can understand where this behavior comes from, mm-hmm. if I can understand how I got to these shoes, that it's not a choice, that it's not a permanent flaw within myself, that I'm not, I hear people say broken all the time. I'm not broken. It invites compassion into that mm-hmm. space. Yeah. And, and, and like, as Kim said as well, it, it helps you if you're aware of it, no, okay. I don't want a partner who's anxiously attached. Like for me, I would identify as anxiously attached, um, predominantly. And I knew for myself, I was like, I don't want someone else anxious. That would be crisis. <laughs> <laughs> like two anxious people in a relationship is typically high conflict. Um, or, you know, very high codependency. You get a lot of high codependency within anxious attachment as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that would make sense. Yeah. That kind of makes sense to me. So, and, and these attachment styles, uh, do they come into play with uh, out, outside of intimate relationship, like is friendships, uh, bosses, um, colleagues, like does Absolutely. it come into play with everything? Mm-hmm. I think about boundaries, right? If I feel secure in myself and trust myself and trust those around me, I'm more apt to set healthy boundaries 
to invite people into my space that honor my boundaries, that um, want to treat me with kindness, with trust, with respect. If I'm anxiously attached or even avoidant attached, I may not invite the same kind of friendships in. We see this in partnerships that people who are securely attached tend to invite in a securely attached partner. Not always, but we see that pattern. People who are anxious or avoidant tend to also invite in the opposite of that insecure. So an anxious partner may invite in avoidant partner rather than a secure partner. And, yeah, and that anxious and avoidant, like just, just I really want to understand this. So, so you know how sometimes it's like there's, there's, um, there's the pursuer and then uh, and then mm-hmm. there's the one, right. The one who withdraws. And so that, that is that a play that happens between anxious and avoidant? Oh yeah. Absolutely. Typically with the anxious attachment, you see the pursuer and the avoidant attachment, you see the distancer. Um, I would say in some rare occasions I've seen where somebody who typically is anxious found a partner who's more anxious than them and they become the avoider. Um, so that, that can happen. Um, but yeah, so you do see how it engages in their patterns of, of conflict really, and how they resolve things and, uh, anxious attachment. We also kind of tend to see external processor. They want to get things out. They want to solve it. Now it's too anxious to not. And then the avoidance, like, I don't want to be vulnerable. So I don't want to solve this. I'm just gonna, I don't want conflict, uh, which is kind of, you know, remove ourselves from that. Um, and that, and that same stuff happens in the workplace, anxiously attached a little bit more anxious about their performance, uh, maybe a little more needy and, and needing more kind of, uh, see, I use the word needy. It's just so natural <laughs> to say that, huh? Um, but they might need a lot more feedback and reassurance. That they're doing a good job where someone securely is very comfortable regulating maybe that kind of discomfort and, and finding ways that they're okay and doing a good job. And then avoid it might just put their reject head down, feedback. do their work. <clears throat> yeah. Reject feedback, put their head um, do their work and not want any feedback because they don't want to go there. You, you know, it's so interesting. I find like with any paradigm that I learn about like this, as, as you had said before, Kimberly, it, like one thing it does is it invites self-compassion, right? Because, you know, it, it's less that I'm just screwed up and more that, oh, okay, um, there's a root that, that I didn't, I didn't, what do they say in 12 step programs? You didn't create it. You can't cure it. Like I didn't create it. I, I, I am, um, it's the outcome of how I was raised. And, and so I'm not bad. And, um, and now I understand it. So I could do something about it. So I love that part of it because it, it does, it allows us to have more self-compassion and not just self-compassion then, but Right. If you're in that, like we were just talking about trying to mend a relationship, if you're in a relationship and you can understand and and that that your spouse, too, or your partner, too, um, didn't lick it off the grass. It came from someplace there. They may not be aware of it, but but um, it's it's causing when, when I was going through a 12 step program, they talked about how the coping mechanisms we create as young children mm-hmm. with addiction or alcoholism in that family serve us so well, like we just in, intuitively know what to do to protect ourselves. And then those very coping mechanisms can actually destroy adult relationships. And, and so I'm, I'm kind of hearing a strain of that in this. And that compassion of, you said it in the reverse too, right? That compassion for my partner. If my partner is, he's a much 
more easygoing human than I am. So I'm going to for that. <laughs> <laughs> but if I see that he's not responding, that's my cue that he's shutting down. Right. And I can think about where he learned that behavior. I can think about what's happening for him. So instead of creating meaning out of that, like I previously have, we've been together a long time. When I was more anxious attached, I would say like, oh, he doesn't care. He's going to leave me. Oh, he's judging me. Now I can take the moment and give pause and say like, man, this is overwhelming for him. He's flooding. Mm -hmm. And then look at my partner and be able to say, hey, Chris, let's take a break. Mm -hmm. Let's both go outside. Let's take a walk. Let's take a, like, let's separate spaces. And that invites compassion for both of us. And so knowing not only my attachment style, but my partner's, knowing his triggers and mm -hmm. mine, knowing those behavioral outcomes can be really powerful in kind of shifting conflict when it does come up mm -hmm. because it will come up. Yeah. yeah and, and, and what you're really kind of hitting at Kim is the idea that you're able to depersonalize it. It's not about you anymore. You're able to have compassion that something's going on for your partner. Mm -hmm. And when you're able to depersonalize um, in these situations and realize this has nothing to do with me, this is just something like going on for them, a okay. benefit of knowing someone's attachment style, then you're able to reduce your defensiveness mm -hmm. and you're able to be curious and you're able to access their needs, which is what you see with securely attached individuals is they're able to recognize that need and be like, oh, my partner's stressed mm -hmm. rather than kind of being so flooded with their own of, oh my gosh, like this is, uh, oh my God, like what am I doing? They don't care. Or the avoidant of, oh my gosh, like they're just so critical. Like I got it away from them. Um, you're able to step outside of that depersonalize, which I think is a huge, huge skill to have when looking at our partner's behavior. So. And I see this show up with parenting, right? So if my daughter's melting down, I see parents do a few different things. One is stop crying because we can't tolerate it. That creates that avoidance, right? She learns I'm not a safe space to share those emotions. So she's going to just take it elsewhere. I see parents sometimes say, oh, what did I do wrong? I'm doing the best I can. Why are you crying? I'm so, like, I'm struggling as a mom or it's been a stressful day. Why are you doing this to me? Hello, anxious attachment. <laughs> Verse, hey, love, I see you're struggling. Can I give you a hug? Are you ready mm -hmm. to talk about it? No, you're not. Okay. Do you want to go take a cool down and then we'll talk about it in a little bit. It also helps shape, shape the way that we parent and then carry that anxious or carry that <laughs> attachment style forward, right? So if we yeah. know our attachment style, I can do it different for the next generation. I love that. And I love what you said, Greg, about like just not taking it personally, right? And I think that that's what gets us so caught in conflict is when your behavior somehow is about me as opposed to it being about you and understanding. I mean, that, that just opens up such a beautiful door. We have a special gift for you. Whether you're still emotionally entangled with your ex or not, imagining and creating your life after divorce can feel surreal for some, terrifying for others. Fears and limiting beliefs around financial security, building new friendships, health and fitness, and even finding healthy love can interfere with your ability to create the life you desire. Journey Beyond Divorce coaches can help you get clear on what you want and the obstacles that are keeping you stuck and guide you in manifesting your ideal life. We're here to help you enter this new chapter with more confidence and enthusiasm 
with a free jumpstart call. Visit journeybeyonddivorce.com backslash jumpstart to book your call today. So I'm wondering if we can pivot and and if I'm pivoting too soon, just say so. But but because our audience, um, we could pretty much assume everyone who's listening has had a, a marriage or relationship dissolve. Um, and and now in our healthy romantic uh, relationship series, we're we're really talking about how to like step back into a new yeah. one. And so what. Can you walk us through what understanding um, my attachment style and even maybe my exes, my co-parents, like the the value in that, what we can do with that? Like, how can our listeners learn theirs and then benefit from it with, let's first look at the the Mm co-parent. Because there's so much under the bridge already, right? There's so much conflict and um, judgment. and Yeah, I mean, one, going back to depersonalizing, right? I think that ties in uh, a little bit to it is if you understand your partner, you can depersonalize and you can be more present for this conflict. Because ideally, as therapists, when we're working with attachment styles and, and trying to resolve them, we're wanting couples to really talk about their unacknowledged emotions, this is how we get through it as, as in couples is really, I want to know what you're feeling and why. And instead, when we look at conflict, it's always like a behavioral reaction and response. Um, they're either, you know, criticizing or they're distancing, but really getting under that why and what is the root of why you're engaging in that cycle and that pattern. Um, and really kind of getting knowledge of that attachment style can help interrupt that cycle. It can put us in position to really understand and approach with compassion and that curiosity. Um, for me, if that's answering the question. Yeah. You know, it's interesting as I'm thinking, okay, so one thing you can do is you can acknowledge and validate your co-parent if you understand where he or she is coming from. Mm-hmm. If they don't know their style or if they're more of the high conflict and they'll just take that as like one more criticism from you, no matter how kindly you acknowledge and validate. What I think um, hearing between the lines is, it still helps. It still helps me because I'm still not taking him personally, because mm. even if I know that sharing like, hey, I know you're going through or whatever might 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 not land well, I can still mm. know it and and therefore regulate myself and and avoid conflict as as one of the party. And that inevitably reshifts the interaction cycles. So in any relationship, parent, child, we all have cycles. We all have what we naturally respond to or react to. And those are influenced by our attachment. Um, And our attachment influences our perspective of what our partner's doing. So if I'm anxious attached, maybe they're distancing as they don't care. Um, Or if I'm avoidant, they're pursuing is just overwhelming. They're critical and I must not be good enough. So when we look at interrupting that cycle, understanding the attachment side, styles is pivotal in that Um, because that really makes us understand our perspective of why we're responding a certain way. And if I understand my partners, I understand they're responding a certain way. And often again, depersonal, it's like, oh, they're doing it because they're feeling overwhelmed right now. I can back off. And even if it's just one person, one person that's aware of it and knowing that, and you can take tests on lines and things like that to get a sense of your attachment style. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you can interrupt that cycle just by changing that. Cause we can't control the other side of the cycle or their attachment style, but we can change how we respond. And a lot of times when we work with couples, that's what we're working on is how do we respond to somebody who's anxiously attached? <laughs> okay. They might need a little more reassurance. They might need, you know, um, a little bit more kind of confidence in the fact that I'm not going anywhere. So validation, engaging in love languages and things that make them feel appreciated in a priority. Maybe someone who's avoidant, we're looking at, okay, as if I'm the anxious attachment and my partner's the avoidant, I need to create a space that's safe for them so they can then turn towards the relationship. If I engage in behaviors that I know that cause distress for them, they're going to avoid. Oh, I understand that when I raise my tone of voice, my partner distances it. Okay. How do I reshift that? And so this knowledge really just gives a whole different avenue of, of how do we reapproach our, our conflict and adapt a new healthier interaction style. Um, and I do want to put a caveat in here, um, especially in the context of parenting is you're not um, going to be perfect. You're human. And if you're worried that you're going to have a certain attachment type for your child because you engage certain variables, you know, now you can interrupt it and we can move forward and, and change that. And kids are resilient. It's not, you know, again, pigeonholed, but that's the same with relationships. Just because my partner's this way or I'm this way doesn't mean that we can't shift it. There's hope. Um, and that knowledge of what our attachment style is to me is a big key. To your question, Karen, about the co-parenting too, <clears throat> just because I can have compassion for my ex just because I can even validate their perspective, it doesn't mean I agree. That's key. And for a lot of people, they want to say like, no, because I don't want them to think that's what I think, or I don't want to be nice if they're being an asshole. Right. And so being able to have compassion and say, wow, they, they have mm -hmm. been through stuff. And this is the best skill that they have. Even not a good one is the best skill mm -hmm. they have. Or even looking at my ex and being able to say, I can see that this is upsetting for you. I can see that we don't agree here. I hear you. Give me space to think about it. Or I want to give you space to think about it. Or, wow, this is really distressing. And how can we find a solution? You can do both. It doesn't mean that because I have compassion or validation that I'm sacrificing my dignity. I hear that a lot with divorce stuff. It doesn't mean that I agree with them. And it doesn't mean that I'm conceding. It just means that you're being human to human in that moment. Mm -hmm. And I think that whenever you are human to human in those moments, it brings defenses down um, because yep. the opposite is usually criticizing and judging. Mm -hmm. um, and um, God, I just had the greatest question that went right out of my head. Isn't that funny? Um, I did want to, can I point out something about the defensiveness? Yeah. In the context of attachment, I feel like when people are defensive, they're defending their attachment insecurity, which if we break it down, is not good enough or not worthy. Can be. Mm -hmm. Not worthy of being my needs met, not worthy of being good enough. Right. 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 So I remembered my question. Um, thank you for that. And so when I a little bit about my story, when 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 I realized that things were going sideways, I begged for space. Like I just mm. kept saying to my husband, it, it's been really hard and I just need some space. I just, and I wasn't saying move out. I just, I just need some space. And so as you're describing anxious and avoidant, like sweat on skin, I 
was not given a moment. He would stand outside the bathroom and talk to me the whole time I was in the shower. He'd stand on the second floor, talk to me on the third floor. He just, he, he, he was so unable and I had no compassion. Like now you're saying this and I'm thinking, oh my God, the poor guy, he was like desperate. He was, was supering. Like, oh my God. And I was like crawling into a closet and there's a corner of the eve of the attic to like get away. And that was a dynamic that went on for quite some time before I just got to a point where I have no space. There's only one decision for me to make. I have to leave. Mm-hmm. I talk to people about it. <clears throat> this is more of a visual. So for those who are just listening, put your two hands together, almost like you're praying. If one partner is pushing on the other, so we're starting to see those hands lean, that's the pursuer, the one who's pushing. Mm-hmm. Problem with pushing or pursuing is the other person keeps backing up and backing up until we can't anymore. And that's often when we see this, I'm out effect, right? Because I have nowhere else to go. I'm officially mm-hmm. backed up as far as possible. So we actually as therapists work with is having that pursuer back up to give room for that distancer to fill in the space. If we don't back up, but there's nowhere for this person Mm. to go. And so if, if you find yourself in either role, being able to advocate for that space, setting those boundaries, if you can't get it in your home, leave your home, right? I'm not saying leave your partner, but Hey, I'm going to go to the gym or I'm going to take a weekend away or whatever feels safe or best for you but creating some of that space. And if you're the pursuer, as hard as it is with that urgency, that anxiety, you've got to back up or that partner is going to be pushed so far away, so far down Mm -hmm. that they can't come back up. Hmm. Yeah. And and have some compassion depending on what role you're in. Cause again, this is something that we didn't choose and don't blame your parents either they didn't they're doing the best they could and maybe that's their attachment style and that's just kind of what they were engaging in but yeah and and when we're working in therapy with couples with this particular I i always talk about we need to create this dynamic so it's safer it's safer for the person who's pursuing to feel like they don't have to pursue as much because they can trust their partner will come back and safe enough for the person who's avoiding to know that they can come in without being bombarded. Um, Cause we're talking, I mean, in a physiological reaction, we're talking autonomic nervous system, fight, flight, or freeze happening during these interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So. So let, let's shift. Let's see if we can have some fun with this. I'm going to ask you guys, if you could give me some examples of um, you're out on a date and uh, you're sitting across from someone that you're meeting, what are some of the tells of uh, anxious versus mm. avoided when you're in those really early stages of just getting to know each other? Is it there's there something in the conversation? Is there good questions to ask? Like, um, what do you get? If a tell might be, if I'm on a date and I pick up my phone and I see that person looking at my phone saying, who are you texting? That's that anxiety, right? <laughs> That's the exact example. I was <laughs> <laughs> if I'm asking my, my date, like, tell me a little bit about you. And they keep it really short, really protected, but not just like, Hey, I don't know you much. I don't want to open up a mm-hmm. ton, but really guarded. That's more of that avoidant. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to give you much of me because there's too much at risk here. Yeah. And, and, it is tricky though, because first time meeting somebody, we're all a little anxious. Um, so people get nervous, but situations like that, how are they responding to you? I mean, hopefully you don't get on your phone. That's just rude. Um, yeah. <laughs> if you're trying to meet somebody, but the, the thing would be, 
I, the questions are a key one for me. Um, so the anxious attachment tends to might ask a little bit more vulnerable questions right off the bat mm-hmm. um, and be more curious in that regard um, and trying to get a sense of this person. Do they like me? Uh, they might be like, oh, and, and maybe asking for maybe compliments in an indirect way of, oh, I did my hair tonight or, you know, really wanting this feedback and, and of needing that to suggest that they're desired. Um, and, and the avoidant, I typically see where they're quiet, reserved, um, maybe don't have a lot of insightful questions because um, they're afraid to get vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So they're more surface level stuff, but I'm, I'm going to put a little cotton there as well as uh, first impressions can last two to four years. Um, it takes a lot of time to be in multiple, multiple situations with somebody to get a sense of, are they going to be a dick to the waiter, <laughs> if you will? Right. Um, like what kind of person are they? So, you know, look at these keys uh, or these cues as like, oh, maybe they're this style or this not, but give that time and and over the time assess those flags. And, and, and when you decide to be with someone long-term say, okay, I'm willing to accept these flags because no one's perfect. We all have them. Um, I encourage on those first dates, do something new, do something that's challenging, something where there will inevitably be a mistake or challenge and see how they handle it. Mm-hmm. Do they melt down as soon as they're seen as in incompetent, unable, whatever? Do they welcome the challenge and try to embrace it? More of that secure or confident part of ourselves or do they completely shut down and wall out? Mm-hmm. Right? Sitting at a table is a very different type of date than, hey, let's go do an escape room. Mm-hmm. Let's go even try miniature golfing. Let's um, go on an adventure of some sort that pulls out an entirely different part of people than sitting at a table, eating some food and going home. <laughs> we I talk about, you don't really idea. know your partner until you travel. And that's why, yeah. how do they handle crisis? How do they handle Go to an escape room, <laughs> unexpected <laughs> interruptions or mistakes? How do they yeah. handle being bored or yeah. dealing with the mundane? Mm-hmm. How do they handle if I'm a parent reentering the dating world? I get a call from the babysitter. Oh, my kiddo's sick, whatever it might be. How do they handle that? Mm -hmm. Do they support me? Do they encourage me to still prioritize that? Or do they seem irritated, pissed off, shut down? Those reactions can be so informative of what the reactions are going to look like Mm -hmm. weeks, months, years down the line. Because people are on their best behavior on first dates. So if their best behavior gives you pause, it's probably a good place to pause. (laughs) The red flag. And and I love because at the end of the day, too, it's like it's a it's just a great tip for dating. Like, don't take the other person's behavior personally because it has nothing to do with you. Um, and yet it's very informative. It's good information. That's why I always say to people, like even the displeasing stuff is just always good information. Yeah. And one one thing that surprises me that I think is an important topic to discuss, especially early on, that could cue into attachment styles that I I'm shocked. I'm working with couples who've been together 20 years and they haven't really had this discussion is, and of course feel comfortable. This is not a first date, first date, first date question. Um, this is more of, you know, a couple months in when you start feeling comfortable is, Hey, tell me about your family. Like, was there conflict in your family? How did you manage it? Like what role did you play? And that's really a telltale of, Oh, I just kept and went to my room. Okay. I'm a little more avoidant or, you know, no, I had to come in and say, I had to make sure and a little more anxious. Right. So getting the idea of how conflict is managed in their family of origin gives you a cue of how it's probably going to be approached in um, your relationship. 
Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question when dating. And and so if if um, we're taking our, our listeners through this journey and they've been dating for a while and, and they've committed, right? And so now they're entering their first potentially committed relationship after divorce. And, you know, no matter what work we've done, we bring some baggage with us. And, and now today we, we also bring our attachment style. However, we've um, shifted and changed it. We bring that with us. And so in new relationships, if, if we have an anxious and an avoidant um, per, people in a new relationship together, what are some tips that you can give like just early on that would be really valuable for pouring that healthy foundation of understanding and communication around, around this? If you want the relationship to last, but you can already see we respond to conflict differently. We respond in communication differently. This is going to sound really weird. Go to couples therapy. doesn't matter that you've been together three months, three years, 30 years. We think of couples therapy only as the 11th hour, we're in crisis. It means we're doomed. Mm -hmm. No, use it preventatively. If you don't have the skills, don't try to pretend like you do. Go get the skills. Mm -hmm. Go get individual therapy. Go to a workshop. Do things to enhance your skills or your skills as a partnership early so you don't have to deal with those big ruptures later. We'd rather you come in at the very first sign of a bump rather than after everything's already gone way sideways. Mm -hmm. Is it true that an avoidant person would be less likely to want to engage in therapy? Yes. Cause then they know if I go into therapy, I'm going to talk about it. Vulnerable. I'll talk about it. So nope, I'm good. We don't need to talk about it. Or we just try to sweep things under the rug mm -hmm. and we keep sweeping and we keep sweeping. And then all of a sudden we look back and we're, oh my gosh, there's a mound, right? anxious attachment might be more likely to come in typically more of an external processor. So we also see that as a big piece, but it can be hard to take ownership of my stuff in that space. It's hard to not point the finger at my partner and say, well, they do all these things mm -hmm. and take ownership of, but I also do these things. I would say. <laughs> yeah. And even if in a relationship that doesn't change much, it doesn't mean doom and gloom for that relationship. Um, as long as there's a really good foundation of communication and a mutual respect and understanding for each other. And that comes out in, and to me, I guess, depersonalize, depersonalize, depersonalize as much as possible. So you can be curious about why and what's going on for your partner. And curiosity in itself is validating. That makes them feel a priority. Like they really want to understand me. Um, and that opens the door to getting further understanding of, of your partner's behaviors and being able to work through some of the attachment stuff. Now, someone might not say, Oh, I'm avoiding you because of X. They might say, I feel overwhelmed or I feel good. Okay. Tell me what specifically makes you feel overwhelmed. Ask questions. that, Or what does it feel like in your body? Sometimes people can't identify mm -hmm. the trigger, but I can tell you, I feel it in my gut. I feel it in my shoulders. Peaks. For me, I carry tension in my feet, mm -hmm. right? It affects you from toe to your crown. So if I can't tell you what's causing it, I can mm -hmm. still tell you what it feels like in my body. And we can mm -hmm. help with that piece mm. perhaps sooner than we can handle some of those triggers too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and being curious about that and getting understanding. okay, that happens. What could I do now? This isn't what can I do because all of your, my partner's ability to regulate or not regulate is on me, but as a partner, I can influence or support this process. Mm -hmm. And now through that and being curious and understanding what triggers there are um, can help um, adapt 
and, and work through some of the uh, attachment style responses. So it, you, your, your answer brings up uh, an interesting question, um, which is, do you find a difference in gender when you've got people coming in and talking? So there's an attachment style, but uh, are men or women more likely or less likely to, mm-hmm. and I'll oh, yeah. leave the rest blank and let you kind of like, so can you share a little bit about what you see and, and your thoughts around that? We condition men to shut down in our culture. We're getting better. We condition men to shove all those emotions way on down. So become more avoidant. We condition women to be chatty, to talk about things. Now, this is just a pattern we see. It's not at all prescriptive, right? There are definitely men who are more anxious and women who are more avoidant based on their home life. Yeah. Yeah. I say the exact same thing is typically I'd see the anxious attachment with women and, and for men more avoidant <laughs> um, in that regard. And um Again, yeah, culturally, how they deal with emotions, if they feel comfortable, typically you're weak if you deal with emotions, um, which is a big piece of this. I mean, that's really the uncomfortable piece um, is to get through this. You have to talk about the unacknowledged emotions um, to get through kind of the what's mm-hmm. underlying the attachment stuff rather than just interacting around responses mm-hmm. like my partner shutting down. They don't care about me, but really understanding why, as we mentioned earlier. And and, and is does it happen where when people are unconscious of these styles that um that the anxious could just keep pushing against the avoidant as you described and it's like you're not talking you're not talking you won't talk about it and then it's we're done um and have you found that if you can if you can get those individuals in front of you and they can understand the interplay that that dance that that um that that brings benefit and value. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in, in emotionally focused couples therapy, and they, they kind of do a good job of identifying that cycle as it's influenced by attachment and work, helping couples work through that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big piece of it. And, and a lot of the couples I work with, if they, some of them will draw their cycle um, on the, on the, and put it on the refrigerator and they'll be like, Oh, we're in our cycle right now. And then it makes them reflect back. Like, why am I responding this way? Oh. And, and cause in that cycle, you're really writing down the unacknowledged emotions. Like right now I'm actually fearing that they're, going to leave me. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Okay. Well, how do I manage that? And then self-soothe and maybe even talk about that rather than right. responding to the fear of being left with criticism, mm-hmm. if, if you will. Yeah. And so I just want to speak directly to the listeners. I want you to hear what Greg just said. So you may come from a marriage where there was really broken communication. And as you re-enter dating and relationship, Uh, getting the support, having mental health experts, therapists who really understand these things to talk to, to bring your new partner to, um, and to, to, I would hope to know that uh, it's not a sign of, of weakness or a problem with the relationship. It's actually a sign of emotional intelligence and maturity and love to come and talk early on and get that foundation of, of language and understanding. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I actually tell couples and outside of abuse and if the abuse is happening, that's a different story, but I'll 
day, it's not a re- really about right or wrong. It's about how do we learn to be effective? We both grew up in different family cultures okay. and we learn how to respond to conflict and communicate or not through, through those cultures. And now we're taking those two cultures and we're putting them into a relationship together. And it's really about how do we learn to be effective together? Cause we're two different people. Um, even though like we have similarities, no, nobody's exactly the same. Sure. Um, so I, I, I like the idea of it's really about how can we be more effective with each other and right. we have to be effective through understanding what each other are about and why. Right. Absolutely. And at the same time, you can't change the other person. So if you have somebody who's unwilling and the problems just keep coming up and the mound under the carpet gets larger and larger, that too is a red flag that this might not be yep. your forever person. Absolutely. And being willing to lean into those red flags, we often want to resist them. Well, it's my fault if I would just do this different or, well, I don't want to have to start all over again. So I'm just going to muscle through this. Don't just muscle through it. Mm -hmm. Right. Acknowledge your red flags. The big thing that I teach people about is our intuition. We have Mm -hmm. a gut brain connection and that gets downplayed. We try to ignore it. Don't ignore it. You have Mm -hmm. intuition. You have prior knowledge, prior experiences that inform what's happening now. If this mm-hmm. doesn't feel like a healthy relationship or it's a good fit, I know you don't want to start over. Mm-hmm. And acknowledge that intuition, acknowledge that gut, acknowledge your brain, have a little trust in yourself that there's there's mm-hmm. something there that you need to pay attention to. And, and I think while denoting that, and please tell me, correct me if you feel differently about this, um, is there is intuition, but attachment actually influences intuition. So I might have this constant intuition of I'm going to be left and that fear comes up. So questioning, is it my intuition or is it really my anxiety or anxiety or anxious attachment that's coming up? Um, But most importantly, what you're saying, in my opinion, Kim, is is reflect on yourself. Mm -hmm. Does this feel right or not? And why? Okay, this is my intuition. Like, I don't fear anything like they're going to leave or this is too much, but something else is going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The fear voice, I also feel tends to be very. magnified and the intuitive voice tends to be this very sweet, just nudge, you know? And so I think that we, we usually talk to our clients about that. It's like, how do I know the difference? One has an agenda and is loud and pushy. And the other one is there often uncomfortable because you don't want to hear what it has to say, but it's almost like a soft whisper. And I think that's great. I think knowing all of this and then tuning into that, that piece, it's like, what, what inner voice is actually talking to me? Because one, I want to mute and the other one, I want to like amplify. Right. Um, And if we need clarity, I talk to people, we talk about pro cons lists all the time and they kind of get a cheeky reputation, but if we can do them as weighted, that can be really powerful. So as I'm writing, here's a pro, here's a con, whatever, scale them from one to five, one, not a big deal. I don't like their shoes. Five, they don't ask me questions back. Mm-hmm. Then you can actually wait it and see the, the final score at the end. That can be one way of helping us kind of discern what we're thinking, what we're feeling, and actually break it down in a way that's more clear and digestible. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is so helpful. Um, I don't have another question to ask. And so I'm going to ask you how last tips or suggestions that you want to share with our listeners before we wrap this up. Yeah, that's a good, what are some tips uh. <laughs> for me? I just think about, I go back to that, like curiosity and compassion, yeah. right? You have, you went through a divorce. There's not one person at fault here. 
takes two to tango minus. Yeah. So giving yourself compassion, trying to lean into compassion for the other person, even if it's really hard. And as you enter into this new relationship or relationships, give them compassion, give yourself compassion. If it doesn't go well, give room for curiosity to explore this relationship, but to also say, maybe this isn't the right one for me. We often, as people want to find blame or finger pointing or have definitive, clear things to look for or to do or to feel. And that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I would say for me is um, go explore yourself, go explore your attachment style, learn about yourself with excitement of, oh, and, and not blame, you know, of the parent or judgment, but just. Oh, interesting. I, I guess I am more anxious attached. As you, if you heard earlier in the session, Kim mentioned being anxious attached and I'm anxious attachment. Like we're therapists with, you know, over a decade, like a decade with experience. And we have this, you're, you're human. It's being human. Attachment mm-hmm. style is being human. So having compassion for yourself in that and exploring that and just getting a better sense of who you are so you can better approach your next relationships or your current relationship. Because um, it is a big influence on how you approach conflict or avoid conflict. Um, so that's a big one. Another in, in just relationships in general is, is show the curiosity and be present. Mm-hmm. Know your limitations. If you don't have the skills, you're not going to magically come up with these communication skills. Go to someone who has them, go to mm-hmm. an expert, a coach, a therapist, someone and get those skills, right? It's not a place to judge yourself, but rather a place to honor. I've got limitations just like everyone else. Mm-hmm. Here's one of mine. And if there were ever a place where we all deserve to enjoy um, delight and pleasure, it's in relationship. And so invest in yourself and your new partner. Absolutely. I think that's beautiful. Well, this is great. This is such a great conversation. I really appreciate um, you guys coming on and sharing your wisdom with our listeners. How can they find you? So they can find us um, through our podcast, Relationships Inside Out, or they can email us at relationshipsinsideout at gmail.com. And then obviously through our names, Gregory Siebert or Kimberly Murray, we both have our individual practices that they can Google and find Mm -hmm. us. And and we'll provide you the resources that you can share with the listeners. Yeah. So we're going to have all of those uh, linked in the show notes. And I've listened to quite a number of their podcast episodes. And so I highly recommend you go check out Relationships Inside Out. Just great content, really, given where you're at right now. It's it's a perfect segue for you. So, So check them out. And... Greg and Kimberly, thank you so much. This was this thank was just you. wonderful. Thank yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah. And we'll be back again real soon with another episode of Healthy Romantic Relationships. Until then, you take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast. I hope you found guidance and encouragement to help you along your journey. If you like my podcast, please take a minute to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. You can also visit us at jbddivorcesupport.com, where our team of coaches support both men and women through our one-on-one coaching, group programs, online courses, and free resources. Stay tuned for our next episode, and I'll talk to you soon.